pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, these are your words. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. These are your words, the God who is interceding right now on our behalf. The God who is sustaining the universe by the word of his power. These are your words, and we come asking you, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe life into them so that it would bring life to us, that we might understand you, that we might see your greatness, that we might grow in our faith, that we might be encouraged, that we might be restored, that we might, that we might be renewed in the joy of our salvation. And so I just pray that you would, you would help me today. Holy Spirit, that you would use me for your glory. We ask your blessing and we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> A little while ago, I ran into some friends of mine and they were thinking, and I think it's, it's a go, of making a transition in their lives to move to a new community. And in this transition and in our conversation, the community that they are presently in is where they are because they believe that God had called them there and to build relationships and, and ultimately to share their faith. Because they desired that other people would know the Jesus that they loved. And they said to me, Donnie, we've been here for X number of years and we just haven't seen any fruit. Like nothing's happened. There was a note of discouragement. And so they were believing because they didn't see fruit that God had released them to this next move. Whatever that next move is. In this discussion with them, what really began to percolate in my mind was this idea of, well, what does it mean to be fruitful? What does that mean? What does it look like? My friends have not seen anyone come to faith, so what does it mean? Are they not fruitful? They've built amazing relationships in the community that they live in, and yet they're discouraged because they don't see fruit. They believe they've been faithful to God. But Donnie, there's no fruit. There's a sense of disappointment. And yet there's also this sense that we're released now from what God had called them to. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't. That's not the point. The point is, what does it mean to be fruitful? What does it mean? How does it, what does it look like? How do you know when you are being fruitful in living for God, for following Christ, in living for Christ? What does it look like? I know you, most of you, quite well. Some of you getting to know better all the time. I know that myself, I want to live in such a way that my life counts for God. 
how do I know if I'm being fruitful? How do I know if that, that my life is pointing others to Christ? What does it look like? I, I'm assuming you have a similar desire. And we were, we'd all be at different places in that. And, and as I was thinking about this message, it really is the fruit of His faithfulness. But the word His there is capital H. And I want to explain how I think Jonah helps me to understand what that means. Jonah is struggling with what fruit looked like as he was living in faithfulness to God's call on his life. And when his faithfulness to God did not produce the fruit that he thought it should produce, he got mad, really mad. And he got so discouraged and anxious that he speaks these words, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better that I die. Those are words of just, okay, I'm packed it up, I give up, I'm done. And I'm sure we can all relate to that at some, some level. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we read Jonah's response to seeing the, the Ninevites repent, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Here's people repenting and believing in God, and Jonah is angry, exceedingly angry, and so disappointed that he wants to give up and die. Do you find that perplexing? He's miserable, he's disturbed, he's morally outraged. Why? What's brought him to this point? And I believe he's at this point because in his mind he had an idea of what the fruit of his faithfulness to God should look like in speaking the, God, the word of God that God had told him to speak. He had an expectation of what that fruit should be, what the outcome should be of him proclaiming the words that God had told him to proclaim. Really, that's been his whole struggle through the book of Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach this message to these wicked people. Jonah has this idea that this message is one where God is going to destroy the people. But Jonah's idea of fruitfulness was just that. It was Jonah's idea of fruitfulness. You hear that? He had a vision. He had an idea. He had an expectation of how it was going to go and how God would work. Or rather, how God should work and how he wanted God to work. And when God did not do the work that Jonah wanted, what is Jonah's response? Anger? frustration, exceedingly displeased, I want to give up and I want to die. Can you relate? Jonah wanted God to do what God said he would do, right? Jonah proclaims a message that God's judgment was coming in 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown, be destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Ninevites will have to give an account before a holy God for their wickedness and God will destroy them. The just God will destroy them. But here's this message implying that there's 40 days for a change to take place, right? It's not in one day God's going to overthrow you or four days. There's 40 days. 40 is quite an interesting number in the Bible. 
and God shows kindness. Forty days, God is showing that He's kind. Forty days, God is showing that He's patient. Forty days is a picture that that repentance is possible, that there is hope, that there is time to give their hearts to Jesus. And yet here Jonah is feeling a failure. He has this great sense of failure. He spoke words and they didn't come true. How will he be perceived as a prophet? He's speaking God's word. God's word doesn't come true. God relents because the people, and the people repent. Jonah looks like a fool. He looks like a false prophet. (laughs) That was his identity. He's a prophet of God, and he's done what he's supposed to do. He's declared God's word, and the people, God didn't follow through with what Jonah thought God should do. So therefore, Jonah is angry because it seems... That Jonah cares more about his own name and glory and story rather than God's. He cares more about about what he's written in his own expectations and how he's going to be perceived. What's it going to be like when he goes back to his hometown? The prophet Jonah goes back to his hometown and the enemies have relented or repented and God's relented and shown them grace and mercy. Wasn't God supposed to care for his own people through the prophets? And yet here, God doesn't destroy their enemy. In fact, they turn to God. The fruitful prophet would not be the praised prophet because there was no fruit. (laughs) Jonah was hoping that that God would move in this profound way, destroying their enemies, that, that God's people would see the holiness of God working on their behalf protecting them, and they too would turn from, from there and repent to God for their stubborn hearts. <laughs> but none of that happens. Jonah's idea of fruitfulness was too small. It was too narrow for an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who knows the end from the beginning. Sigal Samuel, Sarah Farhan, and Atur Lorendau wrote an article in July 24, 2017 in The Atlantic. These three authors, one is a Jew, one is a Muslim, one is an Assyrian Christian, who all lived in the city of Mosul. The city of Mosul is where Nineveh was in Iraq. Here's what they wrote. As we saw the first images of Jonah's tomb destroyed in Mosul on July 24, 2014, we felt shocked and deeply uneasy. We'd been following the news from Iraq obsessively over the previous weeks, distressed by the Islamic State's action, ISIL, in a country we still thought of as home, even though all three of us now live in North America. Every bit of ISIS destruction had been terrible to witness, but somehow the image of this ruined tomb was uniquely jarring. Three years later, with Mosul liberated, we understood why. The tomb, one of Iraq's, Jonah's tomb, one of Iraq's iconic monuments, was revered by Muslims, was revered by Christians, 
and was revered by Jews alike, it was believed to be the final resting place of the prophet Jonah, who got swallowed by a whale and who warned inhabitants of the Assyrian city of Nineveh, now Mosul, that God would destroy them if they did not repent for their sins. Jonah's story appears in the Bible as well as the Quran. I went and read it in the Quran this week. It's different, but it's really similar, and it plays a pivotal part in in Muslims' life. But the tomb was much more than a tourist distraction. It was a constant, potent symbol Overlooking the city, it reminded all of the Mosul people of the interconnectedness of Iraq's diverse religious populations. It was the antithesis of sectarianism, of division. As such, ISIS' decisions to blow it up read as an attempt to erase the shared history of the many religious populations that Mosul housed and to erase the very notion that such populations can share anything at all. But now that Mosul has been liberated from ISIS, we three Iraqis from different religious backgrounds hope all our communities will have a hand in rebuilding the city and its holy sites. Now, do you think Jonah would ever have thought thousands of years later that his life would have an impact on bringing people together in that type of way? And here he is, he's angry, and he believes that God has now affected his ability to be a prophet. Clearly, it didn't. He prophesied the opposite happened, but what happened was the fruit that God desired in God's faithfulness. The problem is that Jonah had focused on the wrong faithfulness. And we know through the words of Jesus that Jonah is a picture of Christ. Listen to what this says in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah drew people together some thousands of years later. People from different tribes and different religions to live in community and unity. (laughs) But Jesus is saying there was a much greater picture coming which was him, the king, king of the nations. And through the common language of the gospel of Christ, he will bring people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation under his lordship, living for his kingdom. Jonah believed that he was being more faithful to his own people than God was. He was being possessive for his people. Listen to what he says, and I don't know if you picked this up when I read it in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says this, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in whose country? My country? He's forgotten that it's not his country, it's God's country. It's God's nation. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 2, we don't get it in 
the English translation of the Bible, but in the Hebrew it says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city of God. Jonah is frustrated because he feels that he cares more about his people than God does. He cares more about their welfare than God does. He loves the people more and believes he knows what is best for his people more than God does. How often I do the same thing with my own family. They're my family. Or, I, or with my own life or with those closest to me or, or, or even my expectations of the church. Thinking that that I, we know what is best, what out- outcome would be best. And then when things don't go as I planned and produce the fruit that I thought it should produce or the, or the outcome isn't as I imagined, what happens to me? I get frustrated. I get angry. I get exceedingly displeased. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I just want to give up. I want to go find a hole or... For me, it's the cabin in the bush by myself, although I would never last. I'm afraid of the dark. I want you to see that Jonah has a real sincere love for God's people. Just like we have a sincere love for those closest to us. The struggle that Jonah is having is having faith in the faithfulness of God. Which is, is my struggle, and I think it's your struggle. He's not believing that God is in control. That God's working things out according to His will, and Jonah's uncomfortable with God's will. You see, God, God's faithfulness is mysteriously beyond your and my reason, because He's God, right? And Jonah, he's been faithful to preach God's Word, And we see God going mysteriously beyond Jonah's reason or expectations. And we see that 3,000 years later. The hearts of these wicked people are touched by the spirit of the living God. The wicked king who fears no one listens to the words from this fish-smelling prophet. They don't mock him. They don't kill him. They hear God speaking to them. They're hearing these words of destruction that the wrath of God is coming. This hellfire and brimstone message not suggesting that's what we should do. And they turn and they believe God. They relent. They repent. Hugh Martin is a commentator that I've been reading and he says, The repentance of Nineveh is one of the greatest events in history. (laughs) And Jonah can't see the greatness of it. Think about it. One of the most wicked cities in all of history. And they're turning from their evil ways at the preaching of a man they'd never met in the name of a God they'd never knew before. They're believing God. And they miraculously believe through the preaching of God's word through the prophet of Jonah. And today, Assyrian Christians look back to this moment in their history and they see the mercy, grace, and steadfast love of God pursuing them through the prophet Jonah. Commentators are split. Did the, was this a genuine repentance of the Ninevites? Was it, was it or wasn't? 
Well, we know today that in Mosul, there are Assyrian Christians who love Jesus and they look back to Jonah. And Jonah pointed them to Christ. They see God has pursued them, that he loved them. How amazing that kings love power. They don't want to be admonished or called out, especially by some prophet from some nowhere place. If you watch any of the things that happen in Parliament on a daily basis when it's in session, no one wants to be admonished even by their equals. And they throw their little tantrums. And yet here's here's the Ninevites. They believed Jonah to be a messenger of God. They believed in the message and in turn they're saying they believed God. We can see the hand of God at work. They put on sackcloth and ashes. It's an act of repentance. They fast and the king orders an edict, edict that they would clean up their act and start loving their neighbors. And they do. The spirit of the living God is at work. And what's Jonah's response? I'd rather die. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah has so strongly placed his expectations of what God's faithfulness should look like that he can't see God's unconditional love moving in the hearts of the most wicked people known to man. Jonah wants to give up. He's lost meaning and purpose by his misdirected faith. And yet we see that at his core, he's not believing that God is faithful, that God is at work. He doesn't see that God is in control. He wants to confine God, the line of the tribe of Judah, into the cage of his own finite reason and dust particle wisdom. The man whose wisdom led him to the belly of a fish. The man whose wisdom led him to put others' lives in danger because he knew it was best. Jonah has put himself his, and his ideas of what God's faithfulness should look like for him and for his people at the center of his story, and it's crushing him. He's wanting to die because he can't trust that God is in control and that God's story is the better story. In fact, he wants God to be accountable to him. And yet, even in his grumpy, go-eat-worms-die attitude, we see God's patient, patience and His gracious love extended towards His servant. What does He say to him? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He doesn't abandon him and eventually he's, you're going to see that He's going to show him more acts of grace in the next little bit here, which we'll look in the next couple of weeks. Jonah's heart has become so disconnected from God's story of redemption and love to his own ideas of what God's story should look like for him that Jonah has now turned in on himself, wanting God to give an account for God's actions because they're not in line with what Jonah's idea of the story should go like. God, (laughs) I've been obedient. I've proclaimed your word. Why don't you do what you said that you would do? The grace, mercy, and love that he had experienced 
which had revealed the heart of God to him in his own experience of being delivered from the whale and being brought back into relationship and restoration with God himself has lost its grip on his own heart. Now, isn't it true that sometimes God's plan doesn't look like the plan of God? From our side of the equation, that's because God is mysterious. His ways are not our ways, and He knows the end from the beginning. And we want to come and have ten easy steps and walk out of here, right? But, it, but it's not how it works with my wife. I don't have a conversation with her. Okay, now here's things I want you to take from a, three things I want you to take from the conversation. I think we just need to get back that God is mysterious, and He's called us to relationship. He says. I, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so we've been called to know this God so that our faith might rest in His faithfulness. I want to read for you Psalm 104. Can you just follow along with me? It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Ministers, that's you. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. You give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen men's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work, to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Living things, both small and great. They go, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play on it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Or go this afternoon and read God's final words to Job. Where were you when I created? Our God is mysterious. He's he's a creator. He is a sustainer. He's working all things out for the good of those who love Him and called according to His purpose. And He's mysterious. We can't put the line of Judah in the cage of our reason. And the reason why is because it will crush us. In 1 Corinthians 3.7, it says this, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We are to live by faith in His faithfulness, and that's what it means to bear fruit. (laughs) You don't know what the outcome is going to be of your faithfulness. But you do know that God will be faithful. That's free. Oh, how that's so hard with my kids. Wanting them to know Christ. But I can only be faithful as a parent to tell them about who God is and what He's done for them in Christ and pray that their hearts would respond to that. But I can't save them. We are to be faithful in living and obeying God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. And that's a response to his gracious, steadfast love to us in Christ and how he's relented from disaster towards us. He's delivered you and I from the belly of death. (laughs) And yet how often do I, do you, do we get discouraged and angry and want to give up? Why? Why does that happen? This isn't the plan that I had for my family. This wasn't the plan that I had for my health. I was thinking of my sister-in-law sitting in a wheelchair at, you know, at 50 years old with rheumatoid arthritis. That wasn't Carolyn's plan. Nellie and Walter, you said something amazing to me yesterday as you sat in your group, Nellie. People are so discouraged as they struggle with spouses who are dealing with health issues. Nellie just believes that God's in and through it, and she was able to witness to hurting people. What a model of faithfulness. And you have no idea the story behind that faithfulness. Hurt and the pain. But Walter believed, believes. God's faithfulness. We struggle with this. This wasn't the plan that that some of you think you've had for retirement. This isn't the plan of how you thought life lived by faith in God was going to look like. And we get so focused on the story and the plans that we have 
And the problem with this ad, and it crushes us because we weren't meant to look to our stories and our plans. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who alone story is faithful. Think about Christ and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows your struggle. He's surrendering to the father's story even though he found the story so difficult. Or consider Paul in Philippians chapter one. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two whether I should live or die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul, you think about Paul's life. He endured a lot of stuff. He wants to go and be with Christ. He's been beaten and whipped and shipwrecked. But he fully surrenders to God's story. And eventually he would say, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. His scars were a picture to you and to I of our of believing in the faithfulness of God no matter what. And that is hard. It's hard to live by faith. A fruitful life is living by faith in a faithful God and trusting ourselves to his story that he's written through his word and through his providence in our lives. So my question to you, to me this morning, are you frustrated? Are you angry this morning? Are you displeased? Are you anxious? Are you, are you filled full of worry? Are you wanting to give up and just forget about everything and be alone? Where are you at this morning? Then maybe you and I are placing too much confidence in our own plans rather than having our confidence in Christ. And that's our daily struggle. Coming to Christ doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be the hardest thing that we ever live. It's a life marked on a road of suffering. It's the Via Della Rosa. It's, it's to walk the way of the cross. And so every Sunday we come to communion. Why do we take communion every Sunday? It's a reminder that there's only one story that can give you and I life, and that's the story of redemption, of faith in Christ. It's a reminder that God is in control even when things seem completely out of control. That he knows what's best. It's, it's a reminder that his story and only his story will bring you the life that your soul really desires. And it's a reminder that our stories and our plans lead to death. It's a reminder that suffering does not destroy us but leads us to life. It's a reminder that death, that death it's not, though hard and sometimes frightening, is really but a new beginning. It's a reminder that we need not fear to walk the way of the cross because it is the way of victory. And as I was thinking of our own life and some of the, the minuscule little things that we're wrestling with, these 
light and momentary afflictions. I was thinking of the words of Jesus this morning. Why does he say this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, many of you will know this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why, why does Jesus say that? I think he says this is because we get tired and restless when we're not following and living and surrendering to his story. He says, take my yoke upon you. Yoke, oxen would be yoked together. He says, the only place that you're going to find freedom is when you're yoked and in my story. Trust me. Yoke yourself to me. Learn from me. Follow me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. I only have your best in mind, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, implying any other yoke isn't easy and any other yoke is not light but burdensome. And so this morning, as you come to the Lord's table, as you drink, as you eat, I pray that the Spirit of the living God would remind you of His great story of redemption, which is your story of deliverance and of hope and of life and of faith in Christ who's mysterious. That you would be reminded He's for you and not against you. That I would be reminded that I can go to Him in the deepest and darkest and most struggling times and know that He understands because He has suffered just as we have suffered and He can understand So I pray that you are so encouraged today. You only need to picture Christ standing before you with his side pierced and the nails in his hands to know that he loves you and that he understands what you're going through and you can come to him. And that's what we do when we come to the table. So there's wine and bread depending on your tradition and what's meaningful to you at the back. Let me pray for you. And then Steph is going to come up and lead. The way that we do communion at Resonate is you break a piece of bread off and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And there's no right or wrong time when to go or when not to go. But have conversation with your Savior this morning. And then go to Him and receive from Him. Be renewed in your spirit with Him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank You that You are faithful. I thank You that You are here. I thank You that You constantly... And you will never, ever not stop giving us grace. Because the work that you started, you'll carry on to completion. You are a faithful God. And I pray that you would give us a glimpse and a reminder that you are faithful today. God, I need that. And the, we, we, like Jonah, would find ourselves up on the shore again and see your arms open wide. And we would receive from you just the same words that you spoke before. Go. Go to Nineveh. Live for me. And we would find our joy and freedom in that. So God, I pray that you would revive us as a church. God, I pray for those who aren't here this morning that you would encourage them or wherever they're at. 
Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, move, please, for apart from you, we can do nothing. We are desperate for you. God, those in our lives that we're thinking of right now who are really struggling, God, we lift them up to you. We pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would encourage them. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your shed blood that has perfected us completely once for all. That there is for complete forgiveness of sins and there's no longer any offerings that are necessary for our right standing with you. And for that, we just praise you, Christ, and we thank you for your blood. God, thank you that you have, you've given us this bread to eat, to sustain us. Father, the bread is, a, is that picture of our common fellowship and journey that we have. We are together one. We are the body of Christ. God, thank you that you have not left us alone. God, help us to know what it looks like to love and care for each other as the body. I pray these things in the name of Christ. I pray them for the glory of God the Father. And I pray that you might transform us in such a way that, Jesus, you would be seen as the treasured possession that you are in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.